welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 256 and my conversation with composer and percussionist Alexis C. Lamb. We are done with band camp and now are in classes. The rest of camp went very warmly and it went very well. We've got a great group this year for Marching Mizzou, even through a current week where temperatures are at. Stand by, checking technical term. Ah, here it is. Surface of the sun. And we're at the start of a new semester and a new year, which is one of my least favorite times of year. I really enjoy it when we're about four to five weeks in and classes are rolling along and you know your students better. That, to me, is much more fun. But so far, so good. All right, let's get right to Alexis. I am meeting Alexis for the first time in this interview, and I was thrilled she was up for this conversation. It became apparent during the interview why I knew I had heard Alexis' name but wasn't sure from where. Turns out that I had attended the Proyecto Arco Musical concerts that Alexis had both performed in and wrote music for at PASIC. And she also did her undergrad at Northern Illinois, which connects us to a few great previous podcast guests, Rich Holly, Abby Rehard, and Rachel Taylor. Make sure to check out those episodes at a later time. I've got links to those included in the show notes. Alexis has been active as both a composer and a percussionist for quite a few years. She's performed as a solo percussionist, chamber percussionist, and, as you'll hear, in a high school rock band. She's also been a high school band director and a second grade teacher. She's written for many groups and is currently starting her doctorate in composition at Michigan. We get to all of that and much more, including her love of dad jokes in this episode. One note before we start... For some reason, there was a pretty sizable noise imbalance on the original recording. As such, I've tried to make the audio work as best as possible and even out our volumes. My apologies if it translates oddly to you as you listen. All right, enough preamble. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 11th, 2021, and it begins right now. So Alexis, give me a summation of, you know, both your percussion activities, but also your composing activities as they are. So currently, um, I haven't been doing too much performing because of COVID. Um, and I also just moved, uh, from New Haven, Connecticut to where I am now in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So when I was in New Haven, I was performing, um, with the community ensemble known as the St. Luke's Steel Band, um, that's run by Kenneth Joseph. And, um, so that was just a really great group of, uh, community members who'd get together on Saturdays and, um, we'd play a couple of shows a year and, um, I would play the occasional performance, uh, for my colleagues or of my own music at the Yale School of Music while I was doing my master's degree there. Um, the goal is to, I've, I've been sitting on this project for, uh, a little over a year now and just need to find the time to do it, but I want to do a 
um, solo project for speaking percussion with electronics um, that I've called the Concord of Discord, and um, basically combining elements of spoken text um, to tell stories about sort of everyday events or objects or interactions that we have. Um, I realized I like using my voice, but not in a singing form. So that's the, the result of that. And then just, you know, practicing um, playing music for the fun of it, which is really, really lovely too. And then uh, in terms of composing, I um, am currently working on a piece that will be performed this upcoming um, February by Ensemble 2021 at the Curtis Institute of Music. Um, that's part of a, a project with We the Purple Project for Democracy and Curtis. Um, and I'll be working with um, the uh, graphic designer Camilla Tossi on the projections for that piece as well. Um, after that, I uh, have a new percussion quartet that I'm writing for um, the educational component of uh, Third Coast Percussions materials. Um, and then following that, I have um, a couple smaller projects um, that are getting in the works right now, and then um, hopefully another uh, sort of large ensemble work um, that will be premiered next year uh, with the Albany Symphony. So, and I'll be starting my um, doctorate in composition at University of Michigan. That was <laughs> that was my next thing. Is, is and that part, yes, yes. <laughs> Wait, so how long have you been in Michigan? A month and a half. Okay. Yeah, so we just just moved here. Um, my wife and I were really fortunate to uh, be able to purchase a house this summer, so um, we have our our own home and work cut out for us. <laughs> work cut out. The home ownership part is what you mean. Absolutely. Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize how much I love doing yard work until I oh. like you know when especially I mean I always like doing gardening and things like that growing up. But there's like a different sense of pride when I have to go and mow my own lawn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or go out and pull weeds or things like that. So, um, yeah, it's a nice a nice bit of physical activity that takes a break from staring at a computer or um, working inside. Because Ypsilanti is how far away from Ann Arbor? We're about 25 minutes away from Ann Arbor. So just close enough that we can be there. I, I can be at you know, on campus when I need to be. Um, but we're actually in Ypsilanti Township, which is also outside of the city of Ypsilanti. So we have a little bit more space. Um, and yeah, it feels great. After, after moving from a city that was only two hours away from New York to now living next to cornfields again, it feels nice to have a sense of space. Because I've talked to people who uh, either do or recently lived in Ann Arbor and I've, one of the things they've told me is is that it's it's just really expensive. Yes, to, to yeah, we'll actually live there. Absolutely, that's uh, when we were looking at houses. On top of there being this entire, entirely unpredictable bubble, essentially, this past summer, where you know we lost. Um, I counted seven houses that we lost when that we had put bids on mm. but um in ann arbor alone the same house that we were looking at would have been a hundred thousand plus more um to ypsilanti so wow yeah that's wild yeah <laughs> <laughs> is there a particular reason that you're going for your doctorate in composition and not percussion 
over the years, I have had a couple of health issues that have come up um, with, uh, for example, I, I have recurring tendonitis in both my arms, and so I can't really practice um, in the same way that I used to. I just, you know, I practice smarter instead of harder. Um, but I also, you know, I, I've kind of over the last 10 years taken different routes in terms of building on this trifecta that I want to have as my career, which is composing, performing, and teaching. Um, and I've done all three of them wholeheartedly for at least one to two years. And now I feel like I can start to blend them a little bit more. And I, I recognize when, for example, when I was teaching um, full-time as a middle and high school band director, that my time was almost exclusively for teaching. And I would still be performing um, on the occasional gig with, uh, like, Project Rock Musical, for example, was the ensemble that I was performing with at the time. Um, and in those couple of years that I was teaching it for that school district, I only wrote, like, four pieces of music that were just, you know, they were fine. But I didn't really feel like I could put my whole heart into them in the same way because I wanted to put my whole heart in for my students. You were, you were essentially kind of keeping your composing muscles going, but it yes. didn't go much further than that. Exactly, exactly. Um, and when I felt like I needed to reprioritize, that's when I uh, applied to different programs for a master's in composition. And I got really lucky and uh, was accepted to study at Yale School of Music. And then I was doing composing wholeheartedly full-time, and was like, gosh, I really hope that there's like a community ensemble that I can play in and join the St. Luke Steel Band um, and still am teaching privately. And so I'm hoping that as I get closer and closer to this um, combination being a little more balanced, that I can feel satisfied in all of those facets that I want to have as my career without um, neglecting any of them. But it's still a learning process for me. Um, at the end of the day, I think that when I do put composing at the forefront of the work, that the performing and teaching feel a lot more balanced than when I when I put either one of them um, as the top of the hierarchy. At Michigan, what is the? I know you haven't started, so it's like it's hard for me to to, to ask you about the programs that you're about to begin it. But what's kind of the the way that they lay out the composing? You know, in terms of what your expectations are as a as a doctoral level composer versus what you were doing as master's level composer. I don't know if this is established by the program there. Um, again, I'm brand new to it, uh, going in as, as fresh as anybody who's perhaps reading on their admissions page or something like that, for example. Um, but what I want to get out of it is really a pre-professional uh, situation as much as possible. Being able to actually practice what it feels like to be teaching a couple of courses and um, be working on some commissions uh, or some other compositional project. And, um, you know, if I get to perform in percussion ensemble, um, for example, I hope that I get to do that at some point. Um, or playing in a, another community ensemble or working on my own project or whatever the case is, that I can really start to feel like this is um, really a, th a three-year program that is just kind of a catalyst for my professional career as a fully-fledged individual. In terms of 
the requirements, it seems like if you are writing music, then it's okay. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're looking to, um, guide you along the way and be there as resources, uh, rather than telling you what to do or, um, you know, what is right and what is wrong in composing, which is really important to me that it feels really like a community effort. Um, and there's no competition among who you're studying with or what their styles are or things like that. It really is just a, a group of creative artists who get together and share ideas and, um, brainstorm things together. Um, so when I'm teaching composition lessons, that's how I approach it too, is just, you know, I'm, I'm here as a guide and we can use this time to bounce ideas back and forth. And I can offer you as many resources as I can to help you along the path that you want to go. So a percussion, the way that I approach teaching that is exactly the same way. Um, just with material that's already written. So, and hopefully still encouraging some, um, improvisation or composition along the way for, for the performers as well. I, I've had conversations with our, our composition faculty here. And one of the things that they mentioned, and it sounds like this is the case is that their job is not to create like a mini version of themselves. It's to, which, you know, could be the case if you're doing percussion, like if you're doing an instrument like that, that makes some sense a little bit because um, in, in terms of that kind of direction. But that the idea is that to create the best version of whatever piece you're working on and to try to actually get to the ideas that the composer has and, and making that kind of clear. Does that sound like what you're you kind of hope for? I think a combination of anything that that the teacher has experienced can also play into it as well and be like, you know, I really like that idea that you're going with for your orchestration, for example, of the, the selection of instruments that you have chosen to write for. I want to caution you about doing this, this, and this, and here's why. I don't want to tell you not to do it because I don't want to limit you in any of your own exploration, but I will tell you from personal experience, this has been my result. Um, and, and the student at that point can take it or leave it. But the goal that I always want to um, encourage for any of my students, regardless of what I'm teaching, is that there aren't any limitations put on them, nor is there any element of, um, what do I want to say, difficulty imposed on what they're working on. I don't want to say like, oh gosh, that's a really hard marimba solo. Are you sure you want to do that? Because then they're not going to want to do it. And they're going to go in with all of this fear and, and um, like predisposed stress in the practice room that could cause physical damage. Um, and it could cause just the emotional strain that's not worth it. It takes the fun out of playing, um, which is why we all started playing music in the first place. Yeah. Except for the fact that I cannot play with nine mallets. I just want to be clear. <laughs> At the same time, I can't do that. Yes. Like there not are things. Yeah. Like Absolutely. not, not, I can't like try to do it. Like I li literally can't do it unless I tape them to my fingers. And then yes. is that what you want? Yes. I would say, obviously there are, you know, physical limitations to playing with nine mallets, for example. Yes. But if it's like, you know, I wonder, I, my, my favorite start to a sentence is, I wonder what would happen if, and then, you know, just open that up for exploration. And so the goal is that 
everybody gets a, a very clear foundation in whatever they're working on and the freedom to explore, even in, in a performance perspective of like musical interpretation. What if I play this excerpt, uh, not not in any particular piece, but if I just play like these couple of measures in this style or with this intention or with this um, one variable at play and you really turn it into a, an experiment where you have all of these other controls and you continuously play with the variables until you find something that seems to suit you as the performer and suit the music and hopefully what the composer was intending. Got it, yeah. I do want to ask just because you, you brought it up and I've been thinking a lot about kind of, you know, health, you know, issues. Mm -hmm. um, you said, you know, right off the bat that you've had kind of this nagging tendonitis. Um, and I'm curious, what are the ways that one can try it? Like that kind of thing is, is something that is, I mean, I, it tends to be chronic, right? Like, I mean, I don't know that there's, there's not a fix uh, necessarily, so what, what kinds of things have you tried to just, just if you don't mind cataloging, like what kinds of stuff have you tried to do to just maintain as much as possible? Well, if I'm being honest too, my, uh, the amount of practicing that I have done over the last five years where I was either in school full-time for composition or teaching full-time was very minimal um, compared to what I was doing when I was a percussion performance student and and trying to build uh on my own performance abilities but um one thing that i tried to implement and continue to implement um especially with with writing um but as you know also in practicing is smaller spurts of time and allowing myself breaks instead of saying i can only check out this practice room for 2 hours a day so i have to use the entire 2 hours that i have that room that's how I got myself in trouble. And, um, that along with a combination of, you know, not sleeping and those two things, not eating healthy, not drinking enough water, you know, but really just like overexerting yourself to the point where, um, it's counterproductive, not only towards whatever the music is that you're working on, but also towards your physical health. So doing smaller spurts of time, um, I always stretch before I play, or I kind of do like a little bit of, you know, like a chops warm up, um, just get the hands moving and then stop and stretch. Um, I have uh, armbands that I use and wear from time to time that just kind of put pressure on the muscles that I need um, to have constant pressure on. Um, for me, it seems like my issues with tendonitis are seasonal. So when we start having these seasonal changes, I start feeling it a lot more in my arms. Um, so it might be that I'm also practicing material that is less physically intensive during those times, but still practicing. Um, so I could be playing a uh, hammer dulcimer, for example, instead of drum set, or, um, you know, I could practice Berenbau instead of a uh, four mallet vibraphone. And that way, you know, I'm, I'm still moving my hands and still keeping the performance energy going, but not um, consistently playing something that has the same amount of energy um, that's, that's being sent through my body as well. Got so it. Just kind of a more holistic approach overall. Yeah. And have you figured out on your own whether there are other parts of your 
life where you're using like either, you know, sometimes it's cooking, uh, sometimes it's driving, um, ways that you're, you're actually, you didn't realize maybe how much you had like kind of stretched your fingers or wrists out that were not part of practicing. Yeah. Um, I had a, a shoulder injury last year that I had physical therapy for, for gosh, like nine months or so. I mean, it was, it was a very severe injury or it felt severe to me. Um, I also did go to physical therapy for my, my arms, um, at one point because it was so bad that I, I couldn't touch my arms without them being in pain. Oh, wow. So yeah, not a fun time, but lesson learned. Again, that's how I found, um, found out that I needed to take the time and sleep, for example. But, um, I got my shoulder injury from helping my mom move and wasn't realizing that I was lifting boxes uh, improperly. And then as I got to the point in my physical therapy where we were, we had built up enough strength to go over regular exercises. I learned, for example, that I have never done a push-up correctly. And, you know, <laughs> like apparently a large group of students in a class in PE aren't all individually, um, what do I want to say, individually uh, accommodated with their push-up needs. But um, I just relearned how to exercise properly. And um, that's why I like doing yard work, things like that, is because I f it feels like I can still move and be active and it it's not overexerting and it also has a time limit. Um, but I also, for example, I like doing things with um, my body weight for workout or like the resistance bands instead mm -hmm. of actual weights yep. uh, because those seem a lot more approachable as well. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Yeah, I hadn't thought about community push-ups and how much of a problem that would be that's good off so it was that and then also she was like how do you look at your computer and i was like well, like everybody looks at their computer you know you sit down you kind of hunch over and she's like yeah that's that's incorrect so i i bought i actually have two screens so the way that i'm looking at you right now for this conversation i'm doing it improperly but i have another screen up here that's on a stand so that when i'm looking at it my neck is even and okay. we like practice exercises about how to basically stretch out your neck from time mm. to time and stretch out your shoulder muscles that are constantly um in this like zombie position yeah. mm -hmm. as we're writing emails all day or as yeah. we're just you know doing whatever we have to do because our computer has been our our job support for the last year and a half yeah so and and so much longer than just a year and a half, but in right. particular, um, so yeah, just sort of relearning old, um, or, or, uh, reframing old habits and trying to adjust them. I, I think about when I see some of the composition students at Mizzou where I'm at, where they'll be on a laptop and just kind of sitting down and they've gotten, I mean, and you're probably the same way where you can do the, the, the entry by key, like, pretty fast. Like you could probably put notes on the screen pretty quickly, but they're all like, it's like they're typing emails all day, but they're doing it while they're composing. It's almost like it's double the time that they might be in that stress position. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, yeah, it takes a toll on your body and, and just even like getting up and stretching a little bit or, um, this isn't really for my hands, but I found out that I can't sit still very well um, as we're, 
you know, doing all of our work on a single screen. So uh, my wife bought me one of these desk bikes, which I call my oh, hamster yeah. wheel. And so I can like pedal under my desk and, and like no one really knows that I'm exercising um, yeah. or just like moving, but it's just, it's, it helps so much with focusing and feeling like there's a different level of energy that I have to put forth to, you know, stay active in a meeting or like putting the, the night shift light on, on my computer all the time so that I'm not looking at blue screen. Right. Um, you know, just things like that, that are also helping me with, um, general exhaustion levels so that I want to practice at the end of it, instead of feeling so tired that I don't get to play anything. Right. I, I think about, we're about to start band camp here. And I, I think about, um, they, they do a thing with, um, with marching band technique where it's like, if you, for the wind players, like it, it, they have to, and if, so what I'm doing, so I have to say this because this is an audio podcast that I'm, I'm holding my, um, got my shoulders and elbows at the same height because the carriage height needs to be here so that they can, they can keep their uh, posture correct. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like a, an exercise to kind of get you to, to, to put your, your, it's the same thing with your computer screen. Mm-hmm. It's to, to get it at a level. And so that's like the practice. I don't, I would assume you don't sit here and do this while you're looking at your computer, but maybe you I, do. No, I don't, but I definitely have my own set of like neck exercises where yeah. it, it's funny, but it works really well. It might, my, my physical therapist had to encourage me to do this one because it forces your neck to go into like a double chin Mm. and she's like get as many chins as you can all the way back and then keep that that back facing position and stretch up and then back down but not to the point where your neck like rests on on the back um and so it's it's essentially just stretching out the back muscles uh the back of your neck um which is connected to your shoulder because it seems like everything is connected to the shoulder after what I've experienced over the last couple of months. So if it felt like something was wrong in my shoulder, it was probably because of something in my neck um, or something in my uh, lower back or something in my arm, which was also a really interesting thing to, to recognize and kind of keep in mind um, with practicing and just trying to keep, uh, keep loose. Yeah. All right. Well, Alexis, let's back up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Did you have uh, family members in the arts? Um. Yes. Uh, although not not totally direct. Um, I had an uncle on my uh, father's side who passed away about five years ago, but he was a drum set player, jazz drum set player um, in the Detroit area. So my dad's family is all from East Detroit. So it feels like a a little bit of a homecoming uh, moving back here to Michigan. Um, And then on my mom's side, uh, I had a great grandfather who was a baritone opera singer and, um, he, he was actually an engineer, uh, in the army during world war one. And then when he got out of the military, he, he sang in a community opera company. Um, and his sister, who was my great aunt was a classical pianist and toured, um, pretty frequently with a cellist, uh, from what I've read, but I, I just kind of gathered up some family history stuff over the last couple of years and, and, um, 
yeah, discovered that little bit of, of family history. So, and I had a, an uncle on my mom's side who, um, really wanted to play hammer dulcimer and bought one and, you know, would play it from time to time. Um, but he gifted it to me, uh, about seven years ago or so. So, um, so I, I get to get to play that now and, and keep it going. Sweet. So when did the percussion bug hit you? I was, um, I actually started playing guitar when I was six mm-hmm. and then picked up bass my freshman year of high school because um, the jazz band needed a bassist. They already had a guitarist. And um, I preface that because my brother was actually the one who wanted to play drums and he's two and a half years younger than me. And so, you know, when you have a six-year-old playing drums versus an eight-and-a-half-year-old playing drums, the eight-and-a-half-year-old is just going to pick things up a little bit quicker. That's just how things work with evolution and growing up. Yeah. Um, and because of that, uh, he would get really upset that I was learning his music uh, faster than he was. <laughs> and so I wasn't allowed to practice his drum set. Oh, great. Um, so of course I was like, oh, that could be something I want to do. Um, so then my freshman year of high school again, I had a bunch of friends who were in marching band because um, I was in a, a rock band that started in middle school and went through high school. And a lot of the people in that band also played in um, in marching band. And we also uh, were a high school program that had a winter percussion ensemble that was a concert class actually instead of marching class. And so I auditioned to play bass for that ensemble and got in. And that's when I saw that there were more possibilities in percussion playing aside from drum set. I didn't really know about anything else before that because I hadn't been in band. Um, So uh, my sophomore year of high school, I signed up for the marching band and played xylophone and bells in front ensemble. and then continued that process through high school and mostly focused on keyboard percussion um, until I had to uh, start preparing other material for college auditions. So uh, tell me about this, this band that you played that you in middle school and high school. Yeah. What was was the name first? The name was random youth. Um, (laughs) We, it was part of a, a, local music studios, um, summer camp, actually, they had, you know, it was a studio where you had teachers that taught guitar and drums and strings and piano and whatnot. Um, and so they had this summer program that they, I think they called it like the band aid program or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they would put, um, groups of students together who were at similar ability levels and had similar interests in style of music. And at the end of the summer, we put on a concert. So we would learn like three um, covers of something and then participate in this concert. And three of us in the original band wanted to keep playing music together. So we kept that going. Um, But we played for five years together from from eighth grade through high school. We played mostly cover songs. Mm -hmm. Um, What what styles? uh, Everything from... Wipeout to, uh, you know, Green Day's When I Come Around yes! to Rolling Stones, <laughs> Sympathy for the Devil to Sunshine of Your Love to Funk 49. Um, mm. 
Yeah. Lots so of classic was, rock in there. It was, it was big, like classic rock thing, and then getting into like we need to play something else that <laughs> maybe fits what our friends are listening to. Right, yeah. yeah, something <laughs> something from the two thousands. Is that we were, possible? We were all just like you know the the like hippie middle school kids, hippie yeah. high school kids. Um, but I uh, I started writing songs for the band, but I that was the first time that I realized how uh, vulnerable it is to share your music with other people and receive that sort of criticism. So we played only one song of mine <laughs> and that was okay. Cause it took me, uh, it took a lot for me to just give that one song to, to the group. And the, yeah. and the YouTube link is where for that? It is on YouTube. Is it really? It is. I nice. would, uh, I, I don't know how to find it. I'm sure that it would take only a couple of search words. Um, I will also preface by saying that if you do look that up, that is the reason why I am focusing on speaking text pieces as opposed to singing text pieces. Um, Cause I thought I was going to be Joan Jett and it turns out that was, that was not the case. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that's, that was the, the crew through, through high school. And then um, there were five of us in the group and so I played guitar and sang in that group. And um, I think I'm the only one that went, yes, I'm, I'm the only one that went to college for music or kept playing music afterwards. Um, I think some of them play for the, you know, occasional get together um, with friends or just for their own enjoyment. But yeah, yeah, good group. That, that, I was gonna say, I was like, that's a that, there's another that's another like kind of classic artist like you know, I hate myself for loving you or mm -hmm. um, I love rock and roll or bad reputation. There's a lot of good. She's awesome. Like a, oh, yeah. a lot of good music. Yeah, from I her. sing. I love rock and roll. And uh, again, I wish that somebody <laughs> had told me to not. <laughs> but you know, it's fun. It was it was a really fun time. So, and we had like the best you know, band parents. Cause it was, it was like this thing where we'd get together on Sundays from You're playing their music, Alexis. I know. And so they were our groupies. It was yeah. like, we got together on Sundays from one to 4 PM. Those were uh -huh. like our band practice sacred hours. Yeah. And, um, we'd get together at the drummer's house because his drum set was there, mm -hmm. but also all of our electronics equipment, our PA system. And we had like, we bought a snake at one point and things like that. Cause we were doing a lot of like summer, fairs, festivals, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and we had a, a keyboardist, um, a bassist, another guitarist, and me. Um, and in the middle of every band practice, like all the, the, the dads, the band dads would be down there like helping out with sound and giving feedback on things as we'd practice them and things like that. And then um, every practice, we'd have a break in the middle for a snack. It was like the best band <laughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs> like we'd come upstairs and there'd be like, you know, pizza rolls and like iced tea or, you know, like cheese and crackers or something like that. It was just, it was like still being a kid, but also like trying to be this like cool band at the same uh -huh. time. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. the ultimate combination. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to think that you're, you're just substituting uh, the pizza rolls and all that stuff is just substituting for, uh, I'm going to guess like, cocaine and beer like right. i mean <laughs> a much healthier substitute yes <laughs> yeah 
yeah. So it was, you know, it was really fun. I had a good time with it. So what was the best cover song that you all did, in your opinion? I think it's going to be either Sunshine of Your Love or When I Come Around. I thought those were good ones. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. We also did a couple of Credence Clearwater revival tunes, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Um, but, you know, those aren't as, like, rocky. Um, <laughs> so, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fortunate Sons got a little little kick. It does. It yeah. does. Yeah. But we did like, uh, you know, Down on the Corner and Bad Moon Rising. Oh, yeah. I hear we you. We actually, in my, um, also in eighth grade, uh, I had a, the drama teacher, a math teacher turned drama coach for the, you know, plays that they would do every year, wanted to turn um, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar on its head. And so he changed the plot of it. Um, the piece was instead Julia Caesar, uh, basically just switched all the, the gender roles and, um, placed it in a 1960s high school. Um, and he asked my band to play the music. So we did like the soundtrack for the whole play. Um, and it was all these covers that we were playing, um, and chose songs that, you know, match the aesthetic of what was happening you know, in the in the play as well. So that was like, Bad Moon Rising was on there. Um, Beatles Revolution uh, was on there. There was talk of doing um, The Doors the End, mm-hmm. but I think that one got just a little too dark for us. We weren't we weren't quite ready for that one yet. <laughs> so yeah, we had a really fun time. Maybe not enough pizza rolls to make that one happen. Not yet. But I also, you know, that's just such a guilty pleasure too. Still, I think it's because of the nostalgic aspect. Those are, that was like the quintessential, you know, band snack was those pizza rolls. Gotcha. <laughs> a side note: Have you are you familiar with the movie Hamlet Two? No. Oh, uh, it's um, Steve Coogan. It's like a, he goes back to high school and he and he does like this updated version of Hamlet and. It's 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 really out there, but it's pretty funny. You should okay. That's my yeah. favorite Shakespeare play, so I'll have to check it out. I don't. I have no idea how much it actually has to do with the original Hamlet, but yeah. it, the, the movie was quite quite funny. As you're going through, is is that is your percussion background mostly focused on the um like it's it's like the the those band aspects and your like your your actual band too. But is, is it does it go beyond that? Do you do anything with? Where, did you take lessons, for instance? Um, yes, uh, I I took lessons in my senior year. I feel like most of my lessons were, um, sort of group lessons along the way. I had the best percussion instructor for my high school. Her name was Lauren Riles, um, and she's at uh, Temple University now, doing her doctorate in music education. Hmm. Um, but she was just an incredible role model and um, really, you know, her, her motto along the way was always the last thing I teach is music because we were learning about, you know, how to manage our time, how to be responsible, how to, um, above all things, communicate because an open class or open class, a concert class um, percussion ensemble is essentially just a big chamber ensemble. Um, and so there wasn't anybody conducting us. We had to collectively work together and, um, and practice all of the chamber music skills that 
have been instilled in me since, since that time. And that I continue to, um, practice and encourage in my own work and with my own students. So I really feel like she paved the way for it. And, um, and I really liked the variation that percussion seemed to offer that, you know, if I didn't want to practice snare drum, I could go practice marimba and then come back to snare drum when I want to. Um, but, uh, when I, decided that I wanted to go to school for music. Um, it was for music education initially. And so Lauren helped me, um, prepare all of the materials for my auditions and helped me, um, figure out which schools I needed to apply to, wrote letters of recommendation. Um, she even, uh, organized a recital for me to give at the high school along with a few other percussion students who were already considering going to school for music um, just so that we could practice performing for people, um, individually instead of as a group. So really, really influential person, um, to me and we still keep in touch. Before we get to the kind of the, the next step here, I'm curious while you're doing all this music stuff, are you involved in anything else? Are you doing any sports, student government, church related, anything that's kind of also filling out your time? Yeah, I had a job, um, at a coffee shop that I worked at for, um, I don't know, 12 hours a week, 15 hours a week, something like that. Um, a local, like a local place. It was, yeah, yes. Um, it, (laughs) it's, it's odd because it was actually inside one of those like trampoline amusement parks. Um, it was the, like the place where all the adults, you know, have to drop off their kids for the birthday party, but they can Mm -hmm. have their quiet time. So I worked on the quiet time side of the, of the trampoline park, which was a coffee shop. Um, so it, you know, it worked out for a while and then there was, um, unfortunately a management change that decided not to work with my schedule being a full-time high school student and with my other percussion schedule. So I wasn't able to do that. Um, but I, you know, always was working on something, um, at home related as well, doing a lot of like, you know, just fun odds and ends, things like gardening, or I was still, um, I bought my first car from my grandma by cleaning her house once a month. And so that's, you know, that's how I ended up paying for that. Um, so there was never a dull moment. Um, and I was also in uh, a lot of AP classes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> between that and um, deciding that I was just going to go like fully fledged in uh, this this music thing, um, you know, that that really took up a lot of time. So is math one of the APs? I, I took AB calculus. Um, and then I took that my junior year. And then at the end of my junior year, well, that was because I was going to go to school for engineering prior to deciding I wanted to go to school for music. And then I was like, I'm going to be a music student. Um, so my senior year, I took uh, freshman level statistics so that I could fulfill my math requirement, but not have to, you know, work too hard. And mm-hmm. I actually, um, I was, I was kind of a deviant student from time to time. So like for that, that freshman stats class, I would finish all of my coursework for the day in like five minutes. And then I had a deal with the teacher to, um, get a pass written to go to the band room to go practice. 
and I would come back. Um, she, it got to the point where she was like, you don't have to come back. You're fine. So I would just show her my signed pass when I came back like the next day. Um, sometimes I just went to lunch instead, but you know, <laughs> that's, but I was practicing. I was, I wanted to go in and work on that. So that's what I decided to do. <laughs> the, uh, how good were you at any of the specific trampoline attractions that were in the place? I was good at making the coffee. Oh, okay. Yeah. I I steered clear from the trampoline related activities mostly because I you know, there were a lot of I don't know. I I just yeah, wasn't the wasn't the side of the park that I wanted to be on. <laughs> uh, so, I liked my my coffee side and uh-huh. that's when I I think developed my full coffee addiction. Nice. Um that is still very persistent to this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I got. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Uh, where do you end up going for undergrad? I went to Northern Illinois University for undergrad. So how do you know about it? From Lauren, from yes. my percussion. Oh, okay. So she um, basically did a ton of research uh, of places that I could look into that would be a good fit for me and that had good um, reputations. And, and so the four schools were um, Colorado State University, uh, University of North Texas, Indiana University, and NIU. Um, and NIU seemed to be the, the best fit. Because there's so, there's such a wide variety of activities there. Um, what, how, how did you end up studying with the different professors that are there and like how much time and stuff like that? So like I said, when I initially got there, I was exclusively a music education major. Um, and I, gosh, I think my first semester I studied with Robert Chapel because um, I knew it was his last year before he retired and was Professor Emeritus. So he'd be around to teach um, like tablo lessons and uh, jazz piano. But, you know, his percussion work was, was coming to a close there. Um, and it was sort of set up where I think each semester um, you could request uh, somebody's studio in particular. Um, and so it seemed like a pretty communal effort in terms of, you know, saying, okay, this semester I'm preparing this repertoire. This would be a good person for me to study with. Obviously, as I got older and more mature in the system, I recognized why there would be certain benefits, um, to selecting somebody over the other. Um, but that's how I was able to study with, uh, privately, uh, so many teachers for, for my percussion work, um, I studied with uh, Greg Beyer and Robert Chapel and uh, Michael McStackey, who was there for a couple of years, and Ben Walland uh, for my last semester before student teaching. Um, and then I also just made friends right away who were doing um, a lot of the world music programs. So I played in Chinese music ensemble for um, a year and played Yancheng, which is the hammer dulcimer. Um, I played in Middle Eastern Ensemble for a year playing Rick. Um, I subbed in for the occasional gamelan thing, um, but that was like two concerts and it was a very brief session. It doesn't really, I wish I had spent more time with the gamelan group. Um, and then most importantly, the, uh, the NIU Steel Band, which became a really, um, 
really important part of my time there and something I really cherished a lot. So was that under Liam? Under Cliff Alexis and Liam T. Yeah. yeah. So I started in the, um, there was a university steel band that was taught by graduate students and just to kind of get your head wrapped around it. Um, and then I was able to join the world steel band after and played in the, in the main steel pan ensemble for two years. What kind of thing or kinds of things when you're taking from so many different professors, um, do you find, do you realize that you just need, like, are there things that you just need more time with? Are there, do you real are you starting to realize, like, does your technique get a, get a complete overhaul? What kinds of things do you see as a student that are going on for you at that particular point? Again, I didn't really start to, um, recognize the, the differences in pedagogy styles until later on, just because I needed more experience with seeing how people taught along the way and, and things like that. But there were certain professors who really honed in on fundamentals and made sure that if you had the fundamentals, uh, you could play anything. If you can play snare drum, then you can play anything. Unfortunately, snare drum was not my, um, favorite nor, nor did it favor me. So, uh, we, we have a, a love hate relationship between me and the snare drum. Um, but you know, others would be focused exclusively on the, the musicality and musicianship in performing one specific piece. Um, others were saying, you're about ready to go in and be a band director. I would like for you to focus on the things that you feel you need to to fill in the gaps on. And for me, that was drum set. Um, and others were like, Hey, I have this music. That's really cool. Uh, do you want to listen to it and learn about it? And we can work on this together. Um, so it really, uh, you know, I felt, I felt like there were very different approaches, obviously for each person's style, but all of them had their, um, their benefits along the way. Should be noted again, audio podcast, but Alexis has a Berenbau. Uh, on the wall yeah the other one's hiding behind the microphone here but they're oh no oh yeah and no, i see it yeah yeah hanging there and then hanging on the side um and the the gourds are not currently attached but they are in that closet with all of my smaller percussion equipment as well nice the was it the arco musical i did yes i actually um co-founded the the nonprofit organization of arco music hall with greg Byer, um and that actually started as an um, undergraduate research project that I started in my sophomore year. Um, was it sophomore year? I don't know. It was in 2013 that I started that with Greg. And we um, just wanted to, I mean, he, he asked me if I wanted to work with him on this project and continue his research that he had from his dissertation on the Berenbau. And, um, I wrote a duo uh, for us that semester, along with doing some research about um, the history of capoeira, the um, sort of important uh, lineage of mestres, of master teachers in the capoeira tradition, um, and some traditional capoeira music um, and, and different tokis on the Birnbau, and um, took that to the undergraduate research and artistry festival or whatever they would day. Um, and it won first place. And so that was our 
catalyst to keep this moving forward. And fortunately for us, it was also um, a really big recognition for the College of Visual and Performing Arts. And the dean at the time was Rich Holly, who also, mm -hmm. as a former percussion professor, was very much um, wanting to support this if it seemed like an endeavor that we could that we could really pursue over a long period of time. And so the project turned into a five semester endeavor uh, where we each wrote six new pieces for the Berenbau, ranging from solos through sextets. Um, and during that time, uh, would perform at NIU, um, at other local events. Um, we would do the occasional collaboration with um, the Quilombo Center in Chicago, uh, which was the Capoeira School at the time. Um, and that led to the creation of our yeah our first album, uh, which was called Mea Mea, and then later on um, into developing Arco Musical as a nonprofit organization, and then having Projeto Arco Musical um, be the the ensemble affiliated with Arco Musical, making that more of a professional separation between what was happening at NIU versus what was happening with Arco Musical. It, it occurred to me. When did you all play at PASIC? Uh, we played twice. One was in 2014 and the other was in 2019. The most recent one was in 2019. Okay. I believe I was at your 20. I don't know if I was at the 2019 one, but I was at the 2014 one. That's because that, I was, I realized I was like, that's the first time I had heard of you mm -hmm. was because you were, that you were all playing some of your music, like some of the things you had written for the group, yes. right? Yeah. Half of that show I think was my music. I think that was the first, um, those were the duos, trios, quartets, and quintets on that concert. So, yeah, eight pieces total. And to me, it was just a brand new instrument that I, I was just not at all familiar with. And then, it was, and then there were, there were like, and there were all these combinations that were <laughs> like, it, it was, it was really, it was really neat. I, I was, uh, I, I just, I again, it was like I had no, I didn't know what I was walking into when I went and saw it, and I was like, oh, yeah. this is, huh. I think that was, yeah, the general, um, the general statement from most everyone in that audience, <laughs> unless they had maybe known what, what Greg had been up to over the last couple of years. Um, mm. it was, it was really kind of a new thing for everybody. And, um, it was a real pleasure to, and, and honor to perform not only once, but twice there. Yeah. Um, and, and have my music played. It was really, really special. Gotcha. Now, do you know both, um, Abby Rehard? And um, Rachel Taylor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Abby played in the group. Um, she played at PASIC uh, in yeah. 2014. Um, I think she, yeah, she came to NIU in fall 2014. And then she traveled to Brazil with us um, during uh, the, the summer after we completed all 12 pieces um, and recorded the album. So she has the recording credits on, on most of the album. And, um, Rachel Taylor joined in, gosh, I think it was 2015, I want to say. Um, and she, maybe it was, I think it was fall 2015, yeah. And um, she became a core member of Persia Talk Musical as well, and, and still is, which is wonderful. So she's really taken over, um, particularly uh, on the operations sides of things with the grant writing Um as well for the for the ensemble and is just and overall i mean they both are like fantastic humans and, yeah you know 
such a, a treat to work with every single time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I used to work with Abby mm-hmm. when, uh, when she was at Mizzou mm-hmm. and, uh, but I knew her actually before, oddly enough, I, I actually, I ended up teaching her brother, one of her brothers, uh, in music appreciation class nice. long before <laughs> I knew who, who she was. Um, cause obviously they, they, it's, they have a very striking, like, look the, the the all the all the whole family does uh-huh yeah and and a, and a very similar laugh too but uh <laughs> um so so like i i've she and i actually like kind of go way back i see her fortunately every every because her family's from here right so right. i see her like f- relatively often which is awesome because she uh so yeah i saw her at pasic in in 2019 and we got dinner together and it was just like you know she moved to um to florida to yeah tallahassee work at yeah florida state so you know the further apart we got the obviously more difficult it was to get together so it's always a treat so because you're doing all of these projects and all these different things that are going on are, are does does any of this translate into a like a senior recital like a typical senior recital or did you kind of like partition that off to to, to what you had to do for your to finish your degree? I did three recitals at NIU. So I did my junior recital. Um, and, and before that, I think it was, um, I think it was probably the second semester of my freshman year or my sophomore year where I also declared a performance degree. Um, and so I did a junior recital, um, that had one piece on it that I had written for, for Projet's work music hall. Um, but I had also started to enjoy composing more. So I think half of that recital was either my own compositions or arrangements. Um, and then I did a senior recital that I did not put any Berenbaugh music on because I also did, um, what I called an honors capstone recital. And so this was sort of the final, um, component to my capstone project. Uh, which ended up being the five semesters worth of material. So the capstone itself was basically composing all of the music for the album, performing the recital, and then writing up um, program notes and sort of our chronological progress through the through the time. Now, from there, you go you you go into band directing. Yes, yeah. So from there, I got hired as the sixth through twelfth grade band director at um, Meridian. Oh my gosh, I had to get the Meridian School District, Community Unit School District in um, Stillman Valley, Illinois. So I dove right in um, teaching middle and high school band and loved it. Um, I really enjoyed working with the students. And, you know, it was funny for me because I explained to them that I did not grow up in a band class. And I, you know, learning how to play an instrument in a band class was was as unfamiliar to me as it is to you. So we were while I was trained in all of those things um, and felt confident in how I would approach those uh, learning objectives, I, you know, it was, it was all fresh for me along the way. So um, there were a couple of community members who really stepped up and helped along the way. Uh, A couple of the parents who would come in and, you know, help out with checking out marching band uniforms or, you know, preparing things for whatever we needed to get done. Um, But one community member, um, Sid Anderson, uh, who is, he's, uh, a retired band director who taught at Stillman Valley. Um, he's in his, I'd say mid eighties 
has a heart of gold and he would come in um, two days a week and help teach group, uh, like small group lessons for the students so that I, because there wasn't any way in my schedule, um, and this was only at the middle school, but there wasn't really a place in the schedule for me to teach all of the students on their group lessons. So I would teach um, the percussion group lessons and I think one or two other sections um, because I'd have to hop back and forth between two schools. But then he came in and we set up a schedule and he'd, you know, pull this group of kids for 20 minutes and then they'd come back in and pull the other group. And I couldn't have done my job without him. I mean, he he really... And, and he's still helping out every band director um, in that program along the way. So, you know, he's someone who, um, who I really appreciate. And I had another um, high school parent. Uh, his name is Tim Hess. And I call him my Stillman dad because he had children go through the program who were older than me when I started teaching there. And so he treated me like, he treated me with respect as the teacher to his youngest daughter, um, cause she was a senior when I started teaching there, but he also really took me and the, the choir teacher who had started at the time, um, he took us under his wing and just gave us the background of the school, um, the history of it. And he was a phone call away for anything. Um, he also was our, uh, he's a a percussionist as well. And so he got me involved with, um, playing with another community, uh, a a municipal band in the area. And, um, he played drum set for our musicals. So, and, but he helped get all of the musicians for the musicals, um, hired out in case we, you know, wouldn't have students or, uh, you know, whatever the case was, he built the sets for the musicals. He, you know, would like just take us out for dinner if like something was just needing to be talked about and just like let it let it go and again he's someone who still keeps in touch and and you know so I really appreciated my time there when you were there did you talk to the um whoever was running the musical and say now have you thought about Julia Caesar (laughs) I didn't uh no I did not um (laughs) We, uh, no, no, (laughs) that's, that's just the best answer I have for you. Um, no, the, the other half. So the other thing was that I, I was the music director for Mm. the, for the school district. So on the, on the instrumental music side, I was the director for the entire program. Um, and on the choral side, my colleague was the choir director for the whole program as well. So we did everything from, running, um, the marching band, running the musicals, running all the concerts, um, to going over to the elementary and intermediate schools and recruiting and doing instrument tryouts and, you know, um, doing all of, all of the things to keep that program alive. So it really was, um, a community effort because we couldn't do it all on our own. And so it was, we were really fortunate to have some parents who were just incredible who stepped up and some students who really, also stepped up as leaders and said like, Hey, I can, you know, I can help out with running this sectional, for example. And I could, I could trust that student to go and do that. And I would check in with them and they would come to me. And there was like a mode of communication that we established, um, with our students and with our community members that made it possible to, to be successful in the program. Awesome. 
because I only sort of know the the geography of Illinois. What part of the state were you in? That is in uh, northern Illinois still. So I actually lived in DeKalb, Illinois, mm. um, from when I moved there to go to school at NIU, but also through um, up to when I moved to Connecticut to, to go to Yale. So um, Stillman Valley is about 15 minutes south of Rockford, Illinois, which is the next closest big city. Uh, to the area, but about uh, two, two and a half hours, two and a half hours, um, I'd say, away from Chicago. Got it. Lots of cornfields. We had a drive your tractor to school day. Nice. We had a, a kid who was in the musical whose family ran a sheep farm, and one of the lambs was sick, so mm. the lamb came to the musical rehearsal. Oh. Um, yeah, it was great. <laughs> you know? Ask for a part. Ask for a, for a yeah. Part yeah. The lamb's name was Olive, which is also one of my cat's names. So I just thought it was super cute. And here's this like, you know, this group of students trying to run their musical number and practice their scenes or whatever. And then there's like this lamb literally sleeping in the corner uh, mm. with like a baby bottle. I mean, it was it was adorable, but that was just sort of the quirky stuff that happened. Um, yeah. So yeah, we had a great time. <laughs> so how long did you teach there i taught there for two years while you're, you you said you enjoyed your time there and it sounds like it, you had a wonderful experience it, but you also weren't that you i guess saw the next step for yourself right so so at what point did you realize i, I kind of need want to move on from from this as i kind of mentioned before um I was feeling imbalanced, I would say, with my work as a teacher versus being a performer versus being a composer. And I wanted to, um, I hadn't really started taking myself seriously as a composer until about um, my second year of of being a teacher there um, and realizing that, like, this is something that I really enjoy, that I want to pursue. Um let me just cast out a few lines and see what I get. Um, and so I put together a, a portfolio and spoke with um, former uh, composition teachers at NIU. I took secondary lessons in composition uh, for a couple of years. And um, I applied to eight schools for my master's program because I was afraid that I wouldn't get accepted because of my portfolio or because they wouldn't look at a composition student's degree path if they didn't have a composition background. Yeah. Um, and that was actually something when I was initially looking at schools, I wrote to all of the, the, you know, main faculty or whoever and said, here are some questions that I have. Um, one of them, the first question was, I do not have a composition background formally. Would you even consider my application? And if they said no, which some of them did, I was like, thank you so much for being truthful. You're not getting my application fee. Yeah. Um, I didn't preface it. Like I didn't <laughs> word it that way, but you know. Give me my money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and another concern that I had was I perform regularly with Projeto Arco Musical. If we have, um, a performance or a, a smaller tour set up, uh, is there flexibility with me taking time away from classes to go and do that and then return and, you know, make that up individually with a professor or whatever the case is. Um, and again, some said, case by case. Some said no. And I was like, thank you very much. Um, but I, I was really fortunate to, um, I got accepted to all of the master's programs. Um, 
and waitlisted on one of the doctorate programs and then just rejected from one of the doctorate programs. So I'd say of, of the list, it was a very positive response. Um, and I had actually initially been waitlisted at Yale. Um, and I was kind of teetering back and forth between two other schools that were really interesting to me, um, for a number of reasons and had actually just performed a concert at one of them with Projector Music Hall. Um, and we were driving back from that concert and Yale called and said like, Hey, we have a spot for you off the wait list. And I was like, okay, decision made. Thank you very much. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have had that experience. When you get to Connecticut, what was your first like, all right, I'm not in any place that I've ever lived at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, walking around Yale is, I, 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 um, have never felt such a high level of imposter syndrome <laughs> as being there. But for real. I mean, it was just like, what am I doing here? This is like Hogwarts right now. You know, I would have said something else, but I'm trying to censor. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you feel free to, you could swear away. <laughs> uh, like the idea of living two hours away from New York, taking a train in, that was, you know, odd. Um, the whole thing was very odd to me. And I also, you know, have the best support system ever. And um, my now wife uh, moved with me. Um, we weren't engaged at the time even. So it was sort of like, I will, you know, drop everything and move across the country and we'll make it work. And, um, you know, I, I'm super, super lucky for that. But, um, you know, I I had my own, uh, what do I want to say, my own revelations about Yale and such as what? Well, the difference between Yale as an institution and the people who work for the institution. Um, and there was a lot that I could really appreciate about the people who worked there. Um, and I can still have a very strong disdain for Yale university at large or Yale corporation as it actually is. Um, so, so yeah, but I, you know, getting to study with, um, some really incredible people and, um, having six concerts a year to have music written and, um, encourage, like encouragement to just kind of explore whatever I wanted, um, was really, really cool. So I enjoyed it a lot. What kinds of ways did you find, I mean, this is not necessarily a related question, but like in what kinds of ways did you find percussion outlets while you were there? Well, in the first semester that I was there, I actually wrote a trio for hammer, dulcimer, guitar, and cello um, with the instrument that my uncle gave me. Um, and so I performed it, um, which was really, really fun and was able to do like a studio recording of it in in the studio known as Kismet um, at Yale. Uh and from time to time, some of the other performers or the, the other composers would say, um, you know, I need somebody to play this on this concert and none of the percussionists are available. Could you play? Um, so if it worked in my schedule and I was able to manage the time to do it, I would always say yes, because um, it was really fun to play. And even on some of them, like there was one concert that we played um, that 
it was a, a guest composer who came in and she had a piece for viola and bass drum. Um, and it was just so cool. And they asked me to play the bass drum part. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to play the bass drum part. It was, it was like the most dynamic bass drum part ever. I kind of would hope so. Frankly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, that was, that's Suzanne Farron. Uh, and I, I can't remember the name of the piece, but she is a phenomenal composer. And, um, yeah, it was it was just so so fun, um, and then I played with the St. Luke Steel Band in town. That I um, through through the passing of Cliff Alexis, um, I was able to connect with Kenneth uh, Joseph, who who leads the ensemble there, because he was also an NIU alum, and we connected because of our mutual respect for Cliff and what he had done for us. Um, so I was able to engage with the community outside of Yale and, and really get to know that facet of New Haven, which I also realized, um, again, on the side of Yale as an institution, uh, New Haven is not Yale and there's so much more to that community. And I enjoyed every opportunity that I could to get into the community and be away from Yale, um, in order to just really understand it and, and learn from it. So at one point, uh, this last, um, well, let's see here. I was, I was living in Connecticut for three years, but I was only in the program for the first two. Um, so in this last year, as the, uh, as schools were starting to open back up again, um, my wife's school had a, an emergency maternity leave position open up. Um, she's a, an elementary special ed teacher. And so I taught second graders um, for four months. And I had a blast. It was so, so much fun. Um, and that was probably one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. And dare say equally as fulfilling, if not more so, than completing a degree at Yale. Um, because it was just the community that I got to work with and the teachers who had so much pride in what they did and, and an incredible um, uh, assistant principal who just, yeah, I mean, it was just a really, really wonderful experience. What were you, was this a, a music teaching thing for this, for this, or you just, it was just second grade? I was teaching phonics and math. Oh, yes. <laughs> Dana, my wife was saying, um, I, I don't have a gut feeling about a lot of things, but I have a gut feeling about this one. I think you need to go teach some second graders. Um, and part of it too was that, there was a student um, in the class that needed the sub that uh, really needed somebody with an education background um, or some sort of classroom management just because he was a, a high-risk student. Um, and a total sweetheart when he wanted to be, but again, would flip on a dime and you had to be responsive to that in a calm manner. Um, and so it was... It was nice to go back to having a schedule and a routine and you know it was a it was a sub job not glamorous or anything like that um but it brought in a little extra money that helped us pay for um a, you know the moving expenses to move here and um at the same time I was also applying this is this was in the spring when I was teaching so in the fall um at really the height of this um episode, I was also applying to doctorate programs, um, and, 
long story short, Yale was one of them for a while, and I just felt like I couldn't do my best work there. You know, my my dad's side of the family is from uh, Detroit, and my in-laws uh, live in Chicago suburbs. Um, still have a lot of family, uh, people who I consider family who live in Illinois, because um, I lived there for, for seven years. So, um, you know, it, it felt like coming home in a weird way. Um, even though this is, you know, I, I miss, I, I need a few more mountains for it to really be a home here for me, sure. but, um, it felt like everything was really fitting in the way that it was supposed to. And it just kind of took some time to get out of that. So, yeah, well, and it sounds like it's, it was a, a benefit that your, um, your wife has this, uh, you know, focus that can transfer too. Yes. yes. Yeah. She's a rock star. Um, and again, the best support system, I couldn't have, I couldn't have gone to Yale and, um, not left with some sort of loan from paying for an apartment, for example, as much as it's so amazing that they have a tuition waiver, the stipend is not enough for living. Um, and you know, I, I just having a strong support system of like, I have two best friends from, New Haven that we did, we, we quarantined together. I mean, there was like, there was one other student, um, in the composition studio who was from Australia and, um, was living in international student housing and they closed the housing down. And so she lived part-time with us and part-time with, um, my friends, uh, Francis Pollock and Emily Roller. And, um, that was our five. And so, I mean, like we, um, Dana and I uh, got married in our apartment and Francis planned everything for it. And Emily picked up the cheesecake from down the street. And um, Samantha, the the Australian um, gal, helped out with uh, cleaning up for the day. And, you know, we like we would play games together and we would just talk together and take classes from the same computer because that's what we had to do. But that was our pod for about four months um, was, you know, that group of five. And so, um, you know, I don't think I couldn't have, I I could have gotten through, um, this last year, especially without Francis and Emily. So I'm really, really grateful for them too. That's, that's awesome. Heard great things about, uh, New Haven pizza. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> which, I, which, as a New Yorker, I'm 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 stunned at the people who have told me that New Haven has like some of the best pizza. So. Uh, yes, yeah, and I, you know, the the there are so many bummers. Uh, that's like the easiest word uh, for what happened this last year and a half with COVID. Um, that like doesn't even begin to describe it, obviously, but. Um, one of the biggest bummers for me was that I didn't get to go to New York <laughs> as much as I wanted to. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I went there for, um, a couple of performances along the way and, you know, got to explore a little bit, um, but really didn't get to, you know, go try out all the cool local places and whatnot. So I'll, I'll get back there at some point, but, um, New Haven pizza, there are three main pizza joints. Um, there's Sally's Peppy's, and modern pizza and um and then there's a few other like notables but they're not like the main new haven pizzas Uh um bar pizza 
the, the, the restaurant is just called bar is not one of those notables, but I think they have incredible pizza. Um, but I finally, in the last like two weeks before we moved from New Haven, had a chance to th- to try all three uh, pizzas pretty close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and modern is my favorite, which is definitely fighting words for a lot of people. But you kind of have to like declare which one is your favorite and yeah. and just roll with it. So yeah. like uh, David Lang's is Sally's. I can just that that's a bit of trivia, but um, <laughs> I learned that because that's we we did like a little picnic um i lived in like the little italy part of town too so uh-huh. all the all three pizza places were like very close to each other yeah. and um it smelled great but uh yeah david was coming to town and wanted to get together and he was like we have to have sally's so you know everyone's got their own little their own little taste but i think that modern has the best sauce hmm. so that's that's what i go for all right uh, yeah there you go. All right, uh, Alexis, I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Mm-hmm. And first question is, I, I feel like you could go, you could do this in percussion and composing, is is what's an, an issue in either or both that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I think this is for both. Okay. It is the the identifiers. I'm sorry, my cat is deciding to... In, involve himself here um the identifiers with uh concerts or programming um programming a, a recital that is you know celebrating women or celebrating the you know black community or the lgbtq community or whatever um i understand that it is clumsy for us to get from programming one way to programming another way but I do think that there are much better ways of doing that than saying, like, we're just going to do this as our one token item and then move on. Um, and so one thing that I've noticed um, that I, you know, I have pros and cons about, of course, is doing that but not labeling it that way. I think that's fantastic. But um, I see a lot more people getting to the point, especially in – um, student recitals where they are encouraging students to either ask a colleague of theirs who's like maybe a composition student to write them something um, or they're saying you know you are required to play something by um, an underrepresented composer or mm-hmm. something like that which again having that requirement is a great first step um, we're just some are a little clumsier than others Um, but also, you know, on the composing side of it, I have also experienced, um, less pay for being a woman on a concert or being like an emerging composer on a concert as opposed to an established composer, which like I was never an emerging teacher, right? I just got my teaching license and that was it. So that's a whole other, that's, I think that's my other under the skin (laughs) thing is like emerging performer, emerging composer. Like I emerged at birth. Like I'm good, you know? Um, so that's, I think that's like, that's probably the big qualm there, but between, between these like labels that people can, um, decide to impose on you because they're certainly not self-imposed. I would not say I'm an established or an emerging composer. Um, but, uh, you know, getting a little less clumsy with these labels and kind of moving on with like, Hey, instead of, um, pointing out the fact that we have this many um, composers of color on our concert, we're just going to do this at every single concert because 
that really shows um, a more equitable representation, and it shows, and and, and hopefully, um, whoever is programming, whether it's an individual or a larger ensemble, um, or commissioning pieces, is considering the demographic of their own community. You know, so like New Haven, for example, is not um, a, a community where white man music should be programmed, because that doesn't make up that that doesn't make up New Haven. Um, and uh, Ypsilanti, Michigan is not a place where that exists. I, I mean, it doesn't exist anywhere. I don't know of any white man communities in the area because I feel like they would die out rather quickly. Um, <laughs> there has to be some woman involved at some point. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just, I think that along the way, um, there's there's definitely going to be some, some tokenizing that happens and um, hopefully conversations can happen, um, out of that. And it can be more of a, a, again, a conversation instead of an accusation and say like, Hey, great job in programming X. Um, you know, you might not have considered this, but this is the way that this looks, or this is, um, maybe if it is a person who belongs to that community, this is how I felt when you, um, said that this was a concert for blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and, and really engaging people in that so that we can build communities around this instead of, um, instead of, uh, ostracizing people for that way. Yeah. But I, get rid of the emerging thing. Totally. Like no one, <laughs> that one, that one's no the one real, that. that one really, oh, <laughs> that, is, yeah, that gets under my skin. A lot. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure if you told your middle school students uh, in Illinois that you were you were actually an emerging teacher, yeah, uh, to not like to treat you as such, if right. it, well, they wouldn't I mind. I don't want an emerging doctor to like yeah. help me out. You know? exactly. or, like, my, my brother is a, a wildlands firefighter. I don't want him to be an emerging firefighter when like half of the country's on fire right now. Right. You know. Yeah. Um. So and on the other side of the coin, I it took me a really long time to. Um, use the label of composer because I didn't think that that was a label that I could embody. And so something like in my, in my teaching for younger students in particular, if they're writing something new or improvising an idea or something, I will call it composing and I will call them a composer because I want them to also feel empowered by that and not feel like it is something that's off limits to them. Yeah, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought about it in in the way you were you were explaining in terms of the um like the representation aspect, but I I, I see it. I was thinking about um, one of the things I, I've done. We've had a lot, obviously you know many schools over the last you know year plus have been trying to figure out IDE uh, issues in, in ways that they just hadn't you know thought about in real ways beforehand. And one of the things that that uh, one of my colleagues who's the horn professor here who did was, and I'm going to start doing this is she, she, when she played it, she did a concert and, and this was oddly enough, this was specifically focusing on African-American composers. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also African-American. So, or um, mixed race, but, but one of the things she did is, is she put up a picture of the composer and it was just like, but she didn't say that, like, I'm putting a picture up. Mm-hmm. She, she would, she did, um, like slide, she did a, a PowerPoint that was just there, like on the seat, like on the upper space. To, so you see like who is actually doing it. Yes. I think that's and, the, a brilliant solution. And I've seen that uh, in a couple of other cases as well. Um, 
there does need to be a representation. That's, you know, that's 100% what we're going for, but we don't want it to see it, you know, where it's it's February, so we have to play music by black composers. Yes, no, no, that part. You know, June, so we have to play music by queer composers or whatever. So, you know, there's there's that level of, like, wrong tokenizing. But there's also, um, now we're at the the point of uh, using data points to say, you know, we programmed this many white composers, this many people of color, this many women, this many gender nonconforming, this many whatever, which is another step in the process and an important step. Um, but the goal would be, of course, to get to the point where you don't have to look at the data. You don't have to look at, you know, whatever. Just look at the po- at the photos and recognize that, like, this person has already done their work. And they yeah. know that um, what they're representing is quality music by quality composers. Yeah. And, and, and it is representative of their audience or of yeah. the local demographic or of their own personal um, their own personal identity, you know? So, um, it's sort of community empowerment, um, at the same time as like individual empowerment as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. What this, what this, my friend had, um, when she did that, like it, it, something clicked for me in in a similar way. And so I, I teach a, I'm not doing it this coming semester, but I've been teaching a class that's on writing for the arts Mm -hmm. and, um, Whenever I have, uh, whenever we, I discuss about someone who's written something, um, if we're reading like a, either their article or reading, um, or I'm showing a portion, I'll put a picture of them up next to it. And, and it was a student had said, he's like, I actually really appreciated you doing that. He was the one student of color. He's like, okay, you know, and he was like, I'm going to look at that person's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and I, again, it was like, I didn't have to say, I've put a picture of them up. I just started putting pictures of everyone. I was of all the, like when I was, I did something on film music mm-hmm. and I was like, I put every person's picture up there and said nothing, right. but I feel like it was like, I was realizing I'm starting, they're now seeing that like, when I say composer and it's, and it's an Asian, this happens to be an Asian woman. It's like, yes, it's a composer. Yeah. It's not a, it's not an Asian woman composer. Right. Composer. Exactly. It, we don't need the the preface of label plus composer. Yeah. It's just you know another, again another step in the process. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know, emerging is worse. <laughs> to me, to me, emerging is worse. Um, but you know the, yeah, it's 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 going to be clumsy work for sure, and I, yeah. I recognize that. But I think that people are, um. Again, if it's if it's a way that leads to conversations instead of um, you know ostracizing or accusing or um, canceling of any type, then then we're helping each other out, right? And it can be yeah. a learning experience rather than just like a shutdown. Yeah, totally. Okay, so on a related question, it's it, and and I'm, it's weird that I'm going to ask this for the conversation we just had because I, you've covered some of this already, but. Uh, the way I phrase this, and I'm going to kind of double it up for you on this, being being a woman and being LGBTQIA+, in the percussion and composing worlds, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to leave it open. Leave it. Yes. <laughs> well. Um, where you want. Yeah. I, I mean, at one point in the percussion studio at NIU, I was the only woman. Um, this 
my second year of my time at Yale was the first time in the history of the composition studio where the women outnumbered the men. Um, mm. I didn't really feel too out of sorts with the um, like queer identity or any of that um, in either community because I was sort of just like one of the percussion bros. Um, just like not, but, not, but like a different, yeah. It's funny because I have, um, these like nicknames for different styles of music that are written and performed frequently in the percussion community that I don't totally love, um, for a number of reasons. One of them is because of, again, the physicality of it is just not conducive to healthy playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I call those pieces bro cushion pieces. Um, and then they are written by Combrosers. And so <laughs> I have never heard this. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah so I, I want to know, I want to know more about this. Well, you know, if you are writing a piece of music exclusively to show off your technical chops on how fast you can play something or how many mm-hmm. licks of whatever you can throw in or how many hybrid rudiments or whatever, like no one who, I don't care. Nobody cares. Um, some people probably do, but again, they're not people who I necessarily affiliate with. Yeah. Um, and there's a niche for everybody and that's fine. But again, I am not, um, to me, those, those types of pieces lack musicality and musicianship. And really, um, I think there's a way that you can write music and perform music that has technical ability to it. And certainly extremely challenging technical passages and still be musical. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I fall in place there. I don't want to name pieces or composers on no, that, <laughs> but yeah, there's certainly the brokers to come around. Yeah. It's a and style. I, I, I hear you. I got you. Absolutely. And it's a yeah. teaching style too, unfortunately, which is, you know, I, I did have my run-ins with that along the way um, with, you know, the occasional male professor who would say something that was a little, um, uh, misogynistic or, uh, would just outright, um, treat me differently because I was the female percussionist, um, or in one particular case would treat me and Dana, um, very differently because we were gay and he was a very religious professor. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, those things come along the way, but also, uh, you know, humans have their own opinions and you just kind of learn to roll with the punches and, and go with it. Um, and hopefully find again, another support group that can kind of help you out along the way as you need it. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a a running thread. It sounds like is the support system. You know, I, I, I certainly hope for nothing else that, that, that you find that ASAP, in Michigan too. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I think it's going to be, I mean, already, um, you know, I went to a family gathering last night, so it's a different kind of support system, but it's, um, this one is by blood uh, as of right now, (laughs) (laughs) which is always as appreciated as anything else. Um, but from the interactions that I've had already with, with people here, I think it's a really healthy community and I'm looking forward to to spending my time here for the next couple of years. All right. Next bunch of questions, not uh, much less serious. First question is, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? 
one of the days at band camp that I was teaching for my second year at Stillman Valley, the other um, faculty told the students that they were going to all dress up like me. And when I'm in band camp mode, I am like a dad. Um, I mean, <laughs> I know that's sort of like a the, the like meme culture thing now, but um, at at Yale, Francis uh, gave me the nickname Rad Bad Composer Dad um, because I'm just like the the person who wants to grill, and I'm always in my sandals, and I just have all these like weird like dad things. I, I always tell like the terrible jokes and. Anyway, so band camp, I always have these like, you know, obviously tennis shoes and socks, but like these pants, I'm actually wearing them right now, but they're like, they're like, they look professional, but they're really just like athletic pants with pockets. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I could put everything in them. And then I'd have like a flannel shirt or something, not flannel, but like some sort of like t-shirt in which case during the band camp they all dress up in flannel and then I have like my lawnmower dad hat um that's like the full it's it's my fishing hat really but Mm -hmm. like that's what I wore and then my sunglasses and my sunglasses are on the the like floater line so that I can just like pull them off yeah and you know the the full outfit so a lot of the kids dressed up that day um like me and it was it was pretty funny because I wasn't expecting it at all. Yeah. And some of the faculty instructors also dressed up like that. So nice. it was very um, endearing, I'll say. But, yeah. Is it, was it the kind of thing where once you like spotted it, you're like, oh, no. Yeah, I walked up to them and I was like, like <laughs> yeah. you've got to be kidding me. Right. Um, and, you know, some of them who like didn't wear glasses would, you know, they like went to the dollar store and like popped out the lenses and the reading glasses and <laughs> – things like that. So, so yeah, there was a, there was a good bit of, of, um, of imitation that day, but I'll, I'll say that it's a, what is it? The imitation is the, is the best form of flattery. Yeah. So I think it was a a positive. Yeah. Yeah. Funny all the while. No, that's good. All right. What is one skill that you have that you could never get paid to do, but you're an all time great at? For a long time, I said my superpower was driving long distances without getting tired. Mm. Um, like I can do like an 18-hour road trip and be okay. Um, but, you know, I can also be a trucker and get paid for that. So <laughs> I don't know. If We're I taken. I think I can just like pick up on the puns and the and the dad jokes at like any time or try and come up with something that just sounds ridiculous and um, yet – fits fits the bill do you have have a favorite no it's really a case-by-case thing okay oh yeah my recent okay my recent favorite which was not coined by myself but i follow a number of dad joke instagram pages (laughs) and um (laughs) one of them was like you know that feeling that um that you get when you smell the hamburgers on a grill. I wonder if vegans have that same thing when they mow the lawn. And I was like, yes, this is excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So yeah. Yeah. I I love to do that. And uh, yeah, I think that's my, my unpaid skill. (laughs) Unless anybody is paying somebody to like drink craft beers um, and offer critiques. I haven't seen that, but I'm here if anyone needs it. Uh, 
that or like whiskeys, bourbons, I, you know, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> awesome. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? A great movie is Chocolat. Oh, yeah. Um, I really like that movie. And mm-hmm. that was also the first time that I had like a soundtrack from a film. It was like, who's this Rachel Portman? She's cool. Mm. She's a woman. Holy shit. It was like this yeah. big moment. Um, and then a bad movie is Sharknado, but still a very good movie. <laughs> if you really need to like laugh at something being totally ridiculous, yeah. uh, Sharknado. All right. Go. That's a good one. Nice. All right. What's a favorite book? My favorite book is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love the book Educated by Tara Westover. I've heard awesome things about that. Yeah. It's it's my favorite memoir for sure. Mm. So I highly recommend that one. Um, and fiction, I, I recently read um, Where the Crawdads Sing and really enjoyed that as mm. well. So – yeah, oh, that's a good one. It's a good rap. But, but fiction is also one for the cuckoo's nest, although there seems to be a lot more historical yeah. elements to that. Um, so it, it, it's There's like a weird middle ground on that right. one. Right. Yeah. It's a fascinating, if I remember correctly, isn't it? Isn't the book told mostly from the Indian perspective? Like the... Mm-hmm. From Chief. Chief, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because um, the movie the, isn't. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's brilliantly done because he's he doesn't really speak too much in the book. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know it's dated. It has its, you know, people people will say that it has its things yeah. that are cancel worthy, of course. And sure. um, and of course the way that the character chief is treated is awful. Oh, the way that all the characters in that book are treated are, is awful. Yeah. But um, I find him to be the most endearing character. Mm. Um, and so my other cats, I have Olive and Chief. So oh, Chief nice. is named after him. Yeah. Fantastic. Chief is not as endearing of a cat, um, but sweet and cuddly all the same. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Do you have a sports fandom? I love baseball. Okay. Um, yeah. So I follow the Colorado Rockies, except mm-hmm. that we suck. So, <laughs> like, we're just kind of a step-up team for anybody, um, yeah. and uh, we just seem to be losing people by the second. So, mm. but I, I grew up with them. Um, they've had they've had a few. I mean, have they've made a World Series or, or right? They made a World Series in two thousand seven, and then were swept by the Red Sox. Red Sox yeah. And so my my buddy at NIU was a huge Red Sox fan and held that over my head. Um, yeah. So we've been close. In a couple of playoff games recently, but, um, you know, I actually enjoy watching minor league baseball a lot. Oh, okay. um, so when we were in Connecticut, uh, we went to a number of Hartford Yard Goats games, which, mm. by the way, best mascot, Yard Goats. Like, I don't even I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Um, but they'd have like, you know, the, uh, Francis um, Pollock is also she was joking about writing an article at one point about how like new music opera needs to be like a minor league baseball game. And it's because there's something for everyone. So I would be the only one watching the game. Like, don't talk to me. If if there's actually a play going on, I'm going to sit there with my beer and my fries or whatever, and just like watch the game. 
and somebody else is going to be walking around the stadium and petting the small goats and somebody and like in between all the innings they're going to do things like dress up toddlers in goat costumes and make them run the bases and like throw t-shirts and then mm-hmm. the other person can people watch and right. bongo cam right. or something like that yeah it, bongo cam is the best although <laughs> you know i've seen some questionable bongo skills oh uh, yeah no no true bongo technique on the bongo cam no no but um yeah so i like watching minor league baseball a lot um i have a feeling that being in uh the northern part of the country Again, uh, especially being so close to Canada that hockey is going to come back into my life. Mm. Um, I used to watch the Avalanche quite a bit. Oh, yeah. But, so that would be kind of fun to to get back into. But our minor league baseball team locally here is the Lansing Lugnuts. <laughs> so I'm really pumped. I've actually seen them play once. Oh, nice. And they were playing the Beloit Snappers in Beloit, Wisconsin. Um, and there was this one kid who was playing on the Lugnuts team and his whole family came from Lansing, I presume, or wherever he was, was from that was fairly local, I guess. And it was like a rainy day, maybe 55 degrees. So no one was at the ballpark. So we were sitting behind home plate and there's like four of us there. And then there's Kevin's family and Kevin is this Lugnuts player. And they're all sitting there with these signs like, yeah, Kevin, go Kevin. So I hope that Kevin still plays for the Lugnuts. Um, I would look forward to seeing him again. But, uh, yeah, that's that's the team I'll be following out here. There you go. Yeah. That's awesome. Those those minor league franchises were, were among the – of the things that really, really suffered mm-hmm. uh, that have, you know, with the pandemic because minor league teams are all – are only about – in-game experience they don't have to be you know and they're all farm teams so if you weren't you know it was really more about like just training their players and things like that now i can't say i feel sorry for the sports players because of you know like getting paid a teacher salary and sure you know but i also know that like a minor league baseball salary is pretty close to my teacher salary so you know at least i can i can feel for them in that way yeah. But I, I do love going to a baseball game. Yeah. No, that's definitely a fun time. What was your best um, – or no, not your best. Your worst job growing up? Well, it's not a job that I got paid for, but it's a job that still exists. And it's – I know it's just a chore, but I hate doing dishes. Oh. I will – like – I'll I'll clean the bathroom over doing dishes. Um, and so I just, it's like something about touching other people's food mm-hmm. and even, yeah. So I have to wear gloves. If I'm wearing gloves, I'm fine. But I'll just like, if there aren't gloves, forget about it. I will, I will literally go and clean your bathroom and not do your dishes. Um, so fortunately I was never a dishwasher in a restaurant. Um, Serving coffee on birthday party days at that trampoline park was kind of hellacious. Um, <laughs> would not, I would not recommend that um, to, to too well, many people. But what, what, what specifically is, since I have no frame of reference, what specifically is the problem? Just like this onslaught of parents who got up way too early to bring their overhyped sugar-driven child to a trampoline park. Okay. And there's no – it's just a big warehouse, right? Yeah. So it's like there's nothing that's breaking the sound. So oh. there's just a bunch of screaming children. And then I haven't had my coffee for the day. 
and um, I have like a dozen parents lined up who also did not get their coffee filled before they left the house with their sugar driven child. So, um, yeah, that was, that was not ideal, but I would say, you know, I've, I've chosen some pretty cool jobs along the way. So I did a lot of work in, um, uh, libraries, um, that was both volunteer work and, and paid work, but I volunteered for the Denver public library for 11 years growing up. So, um, that was a fun family venture and, you know, cleaning my grandma's house to pay for my car. There's much worse jobs I could do. So I'd say along the way, it's been pretty great. Yeah. So does that mean that you have an, uh, an arrangement with, uh, with your wife in terms of, uh, I'll cook and you clean or something like that? To... So the funny thing is that somehow I got wrangled. I, um, Hmm. This is one word where I might even use the word manipulated. <laughs> Something happened where I now do the dishes Oh, and it's because I have the gloves. And if I don't have gloves, then I'll right. be like, I'm not doing it tonight. Or like if they break or something. Yeah. But now her solution is always buy an extra pair of gloves. Um, All right. So, you know, I actually, and I love cooking and things like that. So I also know that I am not a clean cooker. So I make a huge mess of things. And um, we, it was a requirement when we moved to New Haven that we find an apartment with a dishwasher mm. because we didn't have one in Illinois. And then we moved out of that one to another one that didn't have a dishwasher. And so we bought one of those tabletop dishwashers, oh, um, which okay. was bomb. I mean, yeah. it was great. And it, you know, it did the job and it saved, I think a lot of arguments from happening. That's good. So, yeah. Yeah. We have our trade-offs, you know, there's yeah. some dirty work I do and some dirty work she does. So yeah. Yeah. Good. Nicely done. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Trinidad and Tobago. Mm. Yeah. I really want to go play in um, Panorama at some point, or at least go and just visit and see it during, during Carnival with Panorama. I think that would be really, really incredible. And yeah. so many beautiful people who I've met from Trinidad and it would just be cool to go explore that. Yeah. So, yeah. This uh, is an important question. Where near the, where at the top of the list does Liam Teague's chant go in terms of stones for steel band? His chant. Yeah. I don't know. You don't know chant. Oh my goodness. I don't know that piece. No, oh, no. I think that's probably one of the few that I don't know. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to write it down and look it up. My favorite piece of his is Hands Like Lightning. Mm. Um, I like that tune a lot. And then we played a lot of Cliff's music there too. So my favorite of his is Pan 2000, which was a beast of a piece to learn. Um, but I mean, that was like an uh, an indirect composition lesson. Mm. It was like learning all the parts for that piece and kind of seeing how they came together and things like that. So I also really want to go, it's totally different, but like... Um, I want to go back to Iceland. I've only been there for two days. Um, and it was really kind of like a layover situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's just gorgeous up there. And I, Iceland is one. And then Greece is another where I'm mm-hmm. like, I've never been to Greece. That's one that I really want to be there for. And I'm really into, I do a lot of fishing. No. So I'd like to go and like, just go on a fishing trip out there or, yeah. you know, see what happens. So, Yeah. I've got a, a good good friend of ours who's local who um, he's from – well, his family's from 
from Greece and he and his wife are now are there for like three weeks. Mm. And, and it's just, and, and you see pictures and you're just like, like, yeah. I, this is unfair. Like it, it's, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. Everything. I mean, it's just, just gorgeous. And, and it seems my mom went to Greece a couple of years ago and like everything is accurate. Like the, the photos actually look like the real place. And yeah. just, she was saying the food was incredible and the people that she met were so friendly and yeah. You know, I think it'd be real fun. Yeah, for sure. All right. What's something if you were to meet someone and they say, I like this, whatever this is, and you're just, you would go, we're good. What would that be for you? I think it could be a couple of things. Uh, I think one of them is going to be, see, this is the like dad side that's coming out. It's like grilling (laughs) or bass fishing. Um, <laughs> I think in a, in another life, like I actually, I worked on a fishing boat actually in Connecticut. Um, that might've been like a dirty job thing. I cleaned a lot of fish, yeah. it's not, you know, but like you just, you just do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think in a different life I was, I, I should have been a bass fisher professional person. Um, and, uh, anyway, so, so grilling bass fishing and then, um, like some really obscure tiny brewery from someplace and they're like, oh, have you tried this, you know, unfiltered wheat beer and this like triple hopped IPA and this like, if they're like speaking my language of things, I'm just like, yes, this is lovely. (laughs) (laughs) You've done your homework, you know. We can talk about the difference between like a, you know, porter and a stout and a, you know, when I'm when I'm like, oh yeah, this beer is the same as this beer, but this has this infusion in it, and like, like my favorite beer is from this really small brewery in Illinois called Pig Mines Brewery, and it's called Vanilla Bitch Slap. <laughs> it's outstanding, and they have another beer that they make. It's like the same base. It's called Southie Bitch Slap. And the vanilla just has the vanilla infusion in it. And it's just, it's like not, I don't like like super flavored beers, but this one just has the little subtle malty hint of it at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's great because my father-in-law found out about this and we were at his like local liquor store one day and he saw that they, they sell it there. So now every time he comes to visit, there's always extra vanilla bitch slap that shows up in my fridge. <laughs> it's excellent. <laughs> Vanilla bitch slap, all right. Vanilla bitch slap, yep, yeah. Hashtag. Uh, also known as VBS, but it's a very different connotation than the VBS that a lot of people usually. Like, yes. I can send my kids to VBS, but I too will enjoy the VBS while I'm at Yes, it. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, either the strangest, most bizarre, or funniest performance moment that involves you. My senior year of high school was the one year that I actually did band and um it was a separate percussion class so that I could play other percussion ensemble material and then we would just learn the rep for the band program and go from there so we programmed um O Fortuna from Carmina Barana as like this big piece that was going to end the holiday concert with band and orchestra and choirs all Mm -hmm. just coming together and I requested that I play bass drum. Um, and I told all of my friends 
that I was going to jump every time I played the bass drum. Um, and I, I have my hair pulled back right now, but, um, it's fairly long right now, but when I was in high school, it was like, like past the shoulders, hippie long. Yeah. And so here's this like punk kid in the back of the percussion thing. And every time we get to one of those big hits, there's a video of it that one of my friends posted and you can see this like hair like flopping <laughs> up and down in the air because I was jumping every single time that yeah. we, that I hit the bass drum. Um, I had a blast. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was just one of those things that, you know, I'd, I'd ask for forgiveness instead of permission Yeah, and it worked out. So, yeah. Yeah, or if like the director said, "Hey, what were you doing back there?" and, and you'd be like, "What? You, did you see that?" Are you sure that was me? No, that wasn't me. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and lastly, Alexis, one one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything, uh, has impacted you the most recently. You know, it's sort of like a, a lighthearted thing. It's an extremely lighthearted thing. Um, but the music of, it's like, yeah, not even a little bit serious. The music of, um, is it Haim, H-A-I-M mm -hmm. is the band. Yeah. Um, I just needed like a pick me up and found their music. And I, it's literally the only thing I've been listening to this summer. Um, and I'm starting like I, uh, now that I have all of my instruments set up again, like I, I have my drum set set up for the first time in like five years. Um, so I'm learning the drum track to, uh, gasoline. Cause I just think it's got a really cool beat to it. And yeah, it's, it's kind of gotten me out of this slump here. So I'd say that's a good one. That's great. Yeah. They, they were on the Grammys this past year. They were one of the opening groups and they rotated. Uh -huh. Um, I, I didn't know that they did that, but like, uh -huh. all of a sudden I was like, wait, she was, she also plays drums. Like yeah. they, and it was, it was super cool. Yeah. They're insane. And also apparently super friendly people. Um, mm. so, you know, I, I was like reading a story about how one of them, like she was like flirting with some guy in the audience and she like said her phone number into the mic <laughs> in front of the whole audience. <laughs> and, um, I don't even know if he ever texted her or not, but like, other people would text them and just be like, oh my gosh, we love you guys. You know, thanks for being so cool. And they all text back and they're like, oh yeah, no problem. You know, whatever. So, um, you know, that's, that's been kind of a fun thing, uh, along the way. So, so yeah, I'd say that's my, um, my happy go lucky state as of lately. It's just kind of like getting out of that slump and listening to some good, good music that isn't, um, academic or required or anything however we want to justify it it's just really good music and it puts you in a good good place such a total and complete pleasure getting to chat with alexis in this interview i look forward to her never being considered an emerging composer and I hope we get the chance to meet very soon and look forward to hearing from her time at the University of Michigan. Stay tuned. This week's rave is the 1995 film The Usual Suspects, starring Gabriel Byrne, Chaz Palminteri, Stephen Baldwin, Benicio Del Toro, and Kevin Spacey, among others, and written and directed by Brian Singer. 
Let's begin with a side note. I was not planning to rave about this this week as I was looking forward to finally seeing the recent release, The Green Knight, which I'd heard a lot about. However, we had one of those unusual experiences that sometimes happens at a movie theater, and this was at our local art house theater here in Columbia, the Ragtag Cinema, where our sound wasn't working, and it wasn't working immediately. In this case, it never got to work. They did give us comp tickets, but it was very bizarre to plan to see a movie and then have everything fall apart. So I went home and watched The Usual Suspects, a film that I had seen once or twice, but not in the past 20 years or so. This film is sort of a classic whodunit, beginning with a bomb being exploded on a boat and the suspects being rounded up. And it turns out that they were all in on the act in some way, but one of them was the mastermind, and thus the game begins that Chaz Palminteri as the lead detective tries to figure out. This was back from before when Kevin Spacey was not persona non grata and was just an actor getting established and being good at impressions. He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in this picture, and this film was also one of the best Gabriel Byrne performances. It's definitely the best Stephen Baldwin performance, particularly his take on the threatening thing that all of the suspects have to say. And it was the first time that many people were aware of the actor Benicio Del Toro. The film still moves at a good pace. It has a lot of great dialogue. And that is particularly happening among the five criminals being investigated for the crime. The Usual Suspects is frequently cited as one of the classics of the surprise shock ending variety. This movie is now 26 years old. So what the shock is shouldn't surprise now, but it's still really effective as a sudden switcheroo, and it's very enjoyable. If you're in the mood for a modern classic, check out The Usual Suspects, available wherever you get your movies. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.